This podcast was recorded in November 2022. Hello and welcome back to TransUnion's Data, Strategies and Trust podcast series. I'm Mark Reed, and I'm proud to lead TransUnion's Identity Protection and Data Breach Solutions here in the UK. These podcasts are delivered to help listeners better understand the evolving data and technology landscape. TransUnion are a global information and insights business who aim to make trust possible between consumers and businesses. We provide solutions that help create economic opportunity, great experiences, and personal empowerment for hundreds of millions of people in more than 30 countries across the globe. When a business suffers a data breach, trust with their customers, employees, and clients is never more valuable or indeed vulnerable. And that's why we provide a series of integrated solutions across the world that help our clients reduce reputational damage, repair trust, and minimize the financial hit that is all too frequently an occurrence following an incident of this kind. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ellie Ludlam, a partner at DAC Beechcroft, specializing in cyber and data risk, and Bill Flynn, Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel for TransUnion International. Welcome to you both. I think it would be great if we can start the podcast today with a more detailed introduction from our participants. Ellie, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do at DACB? Absolutely. As Mark said, I'm a partner in DAC Beechcroft Cyber and Data Risk Team. And what that means is that we are a practice that's there to support businesses who experience a cyber or data risk incident. And we work with them to understand the legal and regulatory obligations that flow and also to defend the claims which might follow from an incident such as this. We are one of the leading practices in the UK, so we genuinely know what we're doing if you are unfortunate enough to experience a cyber attack. And Bill, over to you. Thank you. So I'm the general counsel for TransUnion International, which is essentially the business unit of TransUnion for all those regions outside of the US. And and in the role, I'm responsible for coordinating and leading a range of legal teams right across the globe from transactional activity, product development, and indeed on our privacy activity as well. So uh, I'm delighted to be able to contribute today. Thank you both. We're going to focus this episode on the current data breach landscape. We're going to cover the burning issues facing businesses across the UK today and gain some invaluable insight from our industry experts on what you should be looking out for in 2023 and beyond. I seem to reflect every year and talk about what a busy year it's been in the world of data protection and privacy, with 2022 being no different. This space is constantly evolving with the suggestion of state-sponsored cyber attacks, a constant threat, and socioeconomic events, including the cost of living crisis, leaving the most vulnerable exposed. In 2022, the UK government introduced the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. However, after much political turmoil in recent months, this is now on hold. We also saw the introduction of a new information commissioner for the UK in John Edwards, who was previously the commissioner in New Zealand. The new commissioner has been very clear on the ICO's strategic plans and direction, which has been widely praised. TransUnion have recently undertaken a new research project, which showed that individual organizations are fighting off more than 500 cyber attacks each year and spending an average of £600,000 annually on protection, defense and response to cyber threats. The study, which spanned organizations across financial services, insurance, law, retail and more, also revealed that 28% of businesses in the UK have experienced a data breach in the preceding 12 months. This is slightly up on 2021, 
with 44% of tech professionals suggesting that the challenging economic situation could be contributing to more people attempting to ransom or steal data. Of those businesses affected by a data breach in the past 12 months, 40% suffered reputational damage as a consequence and over a quarter lost customers in addition to the direct financial impact. More than one in four have had to compensate customers or were fined. So my first question is to Ellie, what trends have you seen in 2022 at DACB and do they match our findings? Thanks, Mark. It's really interesting to hear your own findings and um, to then look at how our MI matches up. So every autumn, the DACB cyber team produces its own internal MI, which we publish at our annual data protection and cyber conference, which this year was held on the 10th of November. The MI is always fascinating as a snapshot of what we've seen coming through the doors for the previous 12 months. And this year's MI showed us that although we had slightly fewer cases coming to us, 211 as against 230 for the previous year, the proportion that went beyond an initial advice, so had legs as it were, was up by 10% to 80%. That's quite high. The number of cases which had a multi-jurisdictional element remained pretty static, and that's effectively where there's more than one country involved, and it was only 11%. It often feels higher than that when you're actually dealing with the cases, because it often feels that there is this sort of cross-border element to what we do. However, what was particularly interesting and what I think marries up with what you're talking about, Mark, is that from RMI, it was clear that the most common breach type that we fielded was ransomware. And 44% of our cases were related to ransomware attacks, which is 10% higher than last year. I've certainly felt that across the last year, I've been advising businesses more in relation to significant ransomware incidents than in previous years, where there would be a bit more of a mix between ransomware incidents, business email compromises, accidental disclosure, for example. Although I would note that we have seen an uptick in business email compromise incidents since around September of this year. A further statistic which I think is of interest is that the number of cases where data subject notifications were required has decreased from 28% last year to only 18% this year. However, interestingly, the number of notifications to the regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office, remains static at 57%, which is almost identical to last year's 58%. So why are we notifying fewer incidents to data subjects when we've already told the regulator about them? Well, one answer may be that with the maturing of our understanding of the application of the GDPR, people are being less quick to notify data subjects and have a better understanding of the concept of risk and when that risk meets the requisite threshold for notifying data subjects. Once you have notified the regulator, the shortest investigation to closure period by the ICO was two days and the longest was 109 days. And this is important because it is quicker than last year. Last year, the maximum investigation length was 151 days, so the speed with which the ICO has been closing their investigations this year does appear to have increased, which is only going to be beneficial for businesses who can face an anxious wait to find out whether enforcement action will be taken against them. It's interesting that you note, Mark, the number of businesses that are subject to a fine or claims. In terms of our clients, we at the moment, and I'm always nervous citing this statistic, our clients have not been fined, so we have a 100% track record of not getting any enforcement action against our clients. Now, there's always the first, and I don't want to be the lawyer that's in charge of that breach. 
In terms of impacted sectors, this, this marries up with what you've said as well. Last year, we saw a significant number of charity and education sector breaches, along with financial services, where this year it's pivoted to professional services, financial services and public sector breaches, and they've been taking up most of our time. We do often see particular sectors being targeted by threat actor groups, so this statistic is interesting and it's consistent with what we're hearing across the market. Thanks, Ellie. I'd like to pick up a little bit more in a few moments on your points around ransomware. Um, but initially, Bill, I wonder if you have any comments based on the insight that Ellie has just shared and what perhaps your thoughts are on the current landscape of privacy and, of course, data breaches. Yeah, I think the data is really interesting because it gives you know some specific touch points in terms of what the experience, particularly in the UK, as Ellie was just describing. I think just zooming out to a, a more global perspective, I think one of the other interesting trends that we've seen is the proliferation of, of the different threat actors, as, as Ali referred to them as. It's not just those motivated for specific financial gain through ransomware, but we're also seeing attackers and intruders that are looking at attacking governments, hospitals, local uh, authorities, gaming companies. And some of these are motivated for cash uh, uh, in the classic sense, but others are either for political gain or for disruption or for other purposes. And I think it's the nature of the motive as well as the nature of method attacks that's now a pretty significant characteristic of what we're seeing in this space. Within our study that I mentioned in my introduction, we found tech professionals see ransomware as the current biggest data breach threat. And we also know from the National Cyber Security Center's annual review for 2021 that ransomware is the most significant cyber threat facing the UK, with the impact of an attack on critical national infrastructure stated as potentially being as harmful as state-sponsored espionage. Ellie, I know you wanted to share with us some thoughts on the, the impact of supply chain cyber attacks. And I wonder if you could share some insight with our listeners and perhaps provide us with some commentary on the continued rise of ransomware. Absolutely. So most organisations rely on a complex network of suppliers and vendors in order to provide products, systems and services that we all rely on. It goes without saying that a supply chain is effectively only as strong as its weakest link and ensuring the integrity and resilience for each of those links within the supply chain can sometimes be a challenge for risk managers. The National Cyber Security Centre, the NCSC, has created a series of 12 principles that are designed to assist parties in understanding supply chain risks, which are very real. Many listeners may already be aware of one of the more highly publicised supply chain incidents in recent years, which affected Blackboard. For those who are unfamiliar, Blackboard is a US-based software and not-for-profit technology company used by healthcare organisations, charities, education establishments, churches and other non-profit organisations globally. In May 2020, Blackboard's cybersecurity team identified that a ransomware attack had been in progress, potentially impacting millions of customer details stored on their systems. Basic personal identifier information, special category data, including financial information, credit card details, social security numbers, and name and password combinations were also impacted. The effect of the ransomware attack was felt worldwide, given the global roster of Blackboard's clients, many of whom stored millions of records. The incident was publicised in international media, leaving clients to face a whole series of questions from potentially impacted data subjects who wanted to understand the ramifications for them. And we acted for a number of global organisations in response to the Blackboard incident. It also led to multiple notifications to data protection regulators globally. 
illustrating how an event affecting one single organisation can spread to have a material effect on a series of related organisations in the same supply chain network. A more recent example in the insurance sector relates to a cyber attack suffered by the Davies Group. It's been reported in the insurance press and is believed to have impacted a number of insurance carriers in the market who outsource various services to Davies. The impact of this breach is still being understood, but it does illustrate the challenges posed when a single party in the supply chain suffers a big data breach. Although it will be difficult to avoid many of the consequences of a supply chain breach, there are certain things businesses can put in place in contracts with their supply chain to reduce the burden of dealing with a supply chain breach. And these include clarifying supply chain designations so that it's clear in the contract whether a supplier is a controller or processor of data, clarifying who is responsible for notification in the event of a breach, and establishing who needs to be notified so that the right company within a group is informed of a breach, for example, and we have seen issues with that more recently, the wrong organisation being told of a breach. These are just some of the steps which can be taken to better protect an organisation from the ramifications of a supply chain breach. Bill, do you have anything to add in terms of TransUnion's own approach as the company's general counsel? Thanks, Ellie, and wholly endorse you know the reference that you were making to robust third party managers is absolutely uh, a good practice generally, but is a um, is a specific item that we look at when looking at third parties is their cyber resilience. Um, we have um, a dedicated global function that looks at this item specifically on our third parties uh, and their own resilience because that clearly will affect our own ability to maintain our services and have our own resilience as well. I think the other element of this, which um, is touched on in, in what you referenced, Ellie, is around cyber insurance. Now, we're aware that pricing for this has increased dramatically over the last period. Uh, but I think it's also worth referencing that insurance does not just cover the cost of any investigation and indeed uh, any potential claims, but also the access it gives those firms affected to both advisors, process, expertise, but also a broader team to assist firms when going through these kinds of incidents. I mentioned earlier on that the UK has a new information commissioner in John Edwards, who was previously the commissioner in New Zealand. Um, Elliot, the ICO conference back in July 2022, there was a passing suggestion that the UK could follow the path of New Zealand in respect of compensation claims. We know that TransUnion's data breach solutions are utilised early on in an incident to help reduce reputational damage and in mind of the defence of future legal claims. And they've also been used, of course, as a, a positive mitigating factor in numerous ICO investigations. But what impact would these potential changes have on compensation claims in the UK market? I think that's a really interesting question, Mark. And you're right that during the ICO's annual Data Protection Practitioners Conference in July this year, the Information Commissioner made this passing reference to there being scope for the UK Data Protection Authority, the ICO, to emulate the approach that was taken to privacy violation complaints in New Zealand. At the moment, under the UK GDPR, individuals have the right to claim compensation from an organisation if they have suffered damage as a result of a breach of data protection law. However, even where the ICO decides that an organisation has broken data protection law, it cannot award compensation to impacted individuals. To obtain compensation, individuals need to attempt to recover losses from the organisation direct or failing that, to bring a claim in court. It is the court that would then decide whether compensation is due and not the information commissioner. 
However, I understand from my counterparts at Watton and Carney in New Zealand that the New Zealand Privacy Act 2020 implements a framework for managing complaints and compensation claims, and it's this that the Data Protection Commissioner was referring to. It involves pursuing a complaint through the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, the OPC, in the first instance, and then, if it's unresolved, a claim is brought through the Human Rights Review Tribunal. Under the New Zealand Act, individuals can bring a complaint to the OPC about any interference with privacy, and an interference with privacy is broadly defined to include a breach of any of the information privacy principles or a failure to comply with notification requirements. Now, like any system, the involvement of New Zealand's privacy regulator in the complaints and compensation process has pros and cons. Managing the early stages of a complaint via the regulator can be more cost-effective and can avoid the need to engage lawyers where complaints are straightforward. However, I understand that while the system may be cost-effective, it can be time-consuming, sometimes taking two to three years to get a finding from the Human Rights Review Tribunal. If the UK does decide to implement an equivalent system to New Zealand, affording the UK the right to determine compensation awards, it's difficult to see how this would be resourced by an already stretched regulator. If the ICO is engaged to handle these compensation claims and the New Zealand approach is anything to go by, it seems likely that resolution of such claims could be even slower than the current system where we already face delays caused by a backlog of cases in the county courts. One potential positive, however, would be the move away from claimant law firms being engaged on data breach compensation claims with the high fees that result, which often act as a barrier to settlement. I think there's some comparisons here, um, Bill, if I may ask you to comment with the Financial Ombudsman Service. Am I correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's an interesting suggestion uh, in an area where we've seen a proliferation of claims over the last few years, not all of which have been successfully brought, I think it's worth noting. But I think you know, our experience with the Financial Ombudsman Service in the UK is that you know, over time it has proved to be a, a successful forum. Um, just for those who, who may not be familiar with it, the Ombudsman um, in the UK acts as an ultimate arbitrator for most financial services claims where the firms and the consumers cannot conclude a complaint between themselves. It's an escalation mechanism. And, and that two-step approach, if you like, where go to the firm first, and if you don't get resolution, you can then take it to the ombudsman. That has actually proved very effective at dealing, certainly with the proliferation of claims that has been caused by a variety of uh, UK mis-selling issues uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. But I think you know it's important to note that the the Ombudsman has taken many years and very significant investment, including a significant uh, cost burden on firms to reach that level of maturity. And it still relies on firms to deal with the vast majority of those cases even today. And I think to, to, to Ellie's earlier point, we also need to be aware that we don't want to burden this process with additional costs and indeed you know, additional uh, either law or regulation in this regard. And and, and, and the delay point, I think, is also really important. We're all, we're all very familiar with the phrase that justice delayed is justice denied. We're already seeing delays in dealing with these kinds of complaints. So any alternative forum has to be appropriately resourced to meet this demand. Um, I do think there's an opportunity for, uh, whether it's the ICO or some other forum, to provide some guidance for firms and indeed for, for uh, data subjects around the quantum of uh, damages that one can expect for a breach of data protection law and how it might affect them in terms of damage. Um, this is notoriously difficult to prove. And I think it would help uh, everybody involved in the process if, if there wasn't 
perhaps a tariff, but certainly some guidance around the sort of range uh, of damages that could be obtained, uh, just to give everybody a, a sense of certainty and, and transparency around what could be claimed. If I could segue from the claims point onto ICO fines. The UK GDPR requires organisations to have appropriate, in inverted commas, organisational and technical security measures, but doesn't explain what those standards are that are required. And the ICO's approach in recent monetary penalty notices has provided some valuable insight into the required levels of security and how organisations might best ensure that they comply with the GDPR security requirements. Ellie, could I ask you in the first instance to comment on those recent ICO fines and what they've told us about their views on appropriate levels of security? Of course. And I think you're right to highlight the measure under the GDPR. So by way of background for listeners, the GDPR requires controllers and processors to ensure appropriate security is in place to protect personal data. However, it's not entirely clear what this actually means in practice. Unfortunately, the ICO's guidance does not provide a list of specific security measures that will achieve the appropriate threshold. Rather, the ICO focuses on outcome-based guidance that sets a course for security, but not the mechanics of how to get there. Consequently, it's important to keep a close eye on monetary penalty notices that are published by the ICO, as they highlight specific measures and practices that are considered inappropriate by the ICO. The Information Commissioner gave a speech to the National Association of Data Protection Officers at their annual conference only two days ago on the 22nd of November, in which he commented that, and I quote, our website says that reprimands will not usually be published. That changes now. We will publish all reprimands going forward, including reprimands issued from January 2022 onwards, unless there is a good reason not to. And the speech indicated his desire to take a more robust approach to enforcement, whilst also reflecting the move away from imposing high fines on public bodies, given the feeling that such fines potentially impact data subjects twice. And what I mean by that is the individual might have a breach of their personal data, so that's the first impact. But then the second impact is that if the body has less money because it's been fined by the regulator, it may not be able to deliver its services to the same standards, which of course has a secondary impact on the individual. So there is this move away from those types of fines. Now, there are two particular monetary penalty notices that I thought it might be positive and helpful to, to look at in terms of understanding the approach that's being taken. In 2020, most of you will be aware that British Airways received the highest fine that the ICO had handed down at the time. The decision notice identifies in some detail the attack, chain and security failures that gave rise to the breach. In arriving at its conclusion that BA's security arrangements were not appropriate, the ICO drew reference to contemporaneous guidance and standards that if BA had applied such guidance and standards, this ought to have stopped the attack from occurring. The InterServe Group decision notice in 2022 followed a similar approach, but added the additional finding that InterServe had not followed its own internal security practices and policies that it had in place. And there are a number of observations that can be made in relation to these two monetary penalty notices. First, when the ICA states that it will not operate with the benefit of hindsight when assessing the appropriateness of security measures, the ICA will look at all the available contemporaneous guidance at the time of the attack, as well as standards, alerts and the organisation's own internal policies. It will do so in order to see whether, if they have been followed, the attack would not have occurred. 
So the approach leaves controllers and processors in the difficult position that it has to follow all guidance all of the time. And the reference in the inter-serve monetary penalty notice to internal policies is particularly important. If the inter-serve case is anything to go by, the ICO will check whether an organisation has adhered to the policy, and if not, it will say that the organisation ought to have checked for compliance. Consequently, organisations should have a policy in place to check adherence to their own policies. Second, the argument that an organisation did not have the financial means to secure itself is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. In the inter-serve case, the ICO wanted to see an actual assessment of cost expenditure and why decisions had not been made by the organisation's leaders when choosing not to spend on certain security requirements. And the ICO noted that some security measures would have come at no cost. And this is really important because I think there is a sense where we're moving towards directors and officers being held more accountable for the decisions they make in relation to cybersecurity. And we've seen that in relation to things like the Uber decision in the US. And finally, the context of the inter-serve fine is revealing. The actual attack is very similar to the hundreds of ransomware attacks that our team has responded to. There have been over 3,000 ransomware attacks reported to the ICO in the last two years alone, and over 250 ransomware cases were reported to the ICO in the same quarter when InterServe reported its breach to the ICO. So why was InterServe singled out for investigation and the subsequent 4.4 million fine? The answer may lie in the fact that InterServe was already on the ICO's radar for previous misdemeanours, and a similar issue may have also faced British Airways who, had they not had a very large publicity impact around the time of their breach, may have fallen below the ICO's radar. Bill, Ellie has posed several challenges there. How difficult do you think it is to argue that you had adequate security measures in place after an attack has actually happened? Yeah, it's um, it, it's not very heartwarming what uh, Ellie's laid out in terms of the test <laughs> that individuals and firms will have to pass. And uh, I hope uh, listeners will have a great deal of sympathy for both CISOs and their advisors in trying to navigate firms through this. But I think I think if you have been breached, it's always going to be difficult to argue you had adequate measures because clearly an attack has been successful. And so I think it's very reasonable for the regulator to take a, an appropriate test position, uh, necessarily uh, with a retrospective bias. And I, I would make an, another analogy here with the senior management responsibility test uh, that the FCA uses for more general sort of conduct issues in, in UK financial services. It's, it is difficult for regulators to prescribe measures across a range of firms' activities. They can't provide those specifics for all firms and all circumstances. And I think the regulator saying, look, you know your business best. You take the appropriate measures for what your business is doing and undertaking and the scale of your operation. I mean, I think the implication for firms like ours is that, you know, we do and have to invest huge sums in this area to keep pace both with both the changing threats to our business in the way that we talked about on uh, earlier on in this uh, discussion, but also as our business grows. And I think, you know, one of the things we need to constantly have in mind here, and I know that John Edwards referenced this in his uh, speech in November, is that whilst guarding against risks in this space, one also must have the ability to innovate and to use data more generally to develop better products and services for consumers. And it's that delicate balance, I think, that makes this su such a, an interesting field, but also such a challenging one for advisors. There's been a lot of discussion 
around where the UK government plans to go in terms of the data protection landscape. Ellie, I'm hoping you can provide us with an update on legislative developments and what that might mean in terms of the UK's adequacy decision. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much movement in terms of the approach of the government to the legislative framework within which we operate currently. And following a lengthy consultation in July of this year, the government introduced the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill with the intention of reforming our data protection regime. Now, bear in mind the GDPR was only rolled out in 2018, so it's a relatively young piece of legislation in any event. In fact, what was published with the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill did not go as far as practitioners had hoped. It was an amending piece of legislation as opposed to something new and standalone, and it was widely reported that it had no cyber impact or impact on the cyber industry. In fact, that wasn't quite right, and there are some important developments contained within the bill that are worth pulling out for the purposes of today's podcast, including the power for the ICO to commission technical reports and the power to compel witnesses to give evidence as part of an ICO investigation. And they are both really important powers when you're looking at breach response. The bill didn't progress to its second reading, though. And at the Conservative Party conference in autumn, the government announced that it would be replacing the GDPR with, and I quote again, our own business and consumer-friendly British data protection system. Our plan will protect consumer privacy and keep their data safe whilst retaining our data adequacy so businesses can trade freely. And I can promise you here today, conference, that it will be simpler and clearer for businesses to navigate. And this is the big criticism of the GDPR by government. They suggest that the GDPR is complicated and that it ties businesses in knots. They reference plumbers and electricians, I think, saying that they were tied in knots and unable to do business because of the GDPR. Now, I don't think that's a fair accusation against the GDPR, but there are tweaks that could definitely be made. Since then, the government has decided to launch a further consultation on the stored bill. The consultation will not be as long as the original consultation on the initial bill that was introduced, but the framework for the new consultation is simply not yet known, so there's a limit to what I can actually say. However, the consultation could provide a clearer picture in terms of the future of the UK's adequacy decision, which is very significant for business, which you've referred to, Mark. Importantly, recent press reports have suggested that the European Parliament was less than impressed by discussions with the Department for Culture, Media and Support and UK officials involved in data reform with regard to ongoing alignment with the EU GDPR. And this is significant because we are reliant on the EU's adequacy decision in order for EU businesses to send personal data to the UK. Now, adequacy is a term that the EU uses to describe other countries, territories, sectors or international organisations that it considers to provide an essentially equivalent level of data protection to that which exists within the EU. If the UK's data reforms deviate too far from the EU GDPR, there is of course a risk that we will lose our adequacy decision, which will inhibit the ability for businesses to send data here. Alongside this, there is the potential cost for businesses of having to become compliant with a new data protection regime. And it's been reported that the cost of businesses having to comply with a new regime would be in the region of 175 million, with a similar further cost per annum. It's very much a case of watch this space. Bill, I'd be very interested to know what your thoughts are with Ellie's comments on this, particularly from obviously the perspective of TransUnion. Yeah, you know, lawyers usually like new law because it's interesting and that's what we do and we like to get involved in it. However, you know, I think from a business perspective, you know, I'd echo the concerns of many firms who spent millions of pounds over the last few years getting their businesses ready for GDPR. 
and also implementing controls, processes, people, etc., um, to to meet the the obligations contained within either European GDPR and indeed our own uh, special version of it. Um, yeah, this this was a heavy burden. It was a big distraction for firms, and it's now pretty well embedded and pretty well understood. That having been said, and and, and to Ellie's earlier point. There are elements of it that do appear to, to lend little overall value and protection and, and are perhaps unduly bureaucratic, if not quite to the extent that's been, uh, that's been publicly uh, uh, mentioned. But I think if there is to be any changes, any legal changes to this framework, it has to be subject to a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. You know, any departure which brings additional costs, you know, remediation of costs, those things must be demonstrably advantageous in order to justify the the expenditure and any changes that look at things like interpretation for example rather than big framework changes would be better and more welcome i think for most firms uh, than you know wholesale rewriting of of rules and approaches and i think the the overall overall concern that we would have and and, and the one thing that must be protected is uk adequacy in the way that ellie described uh, there's so many services and so many processes that now rely on that. So we would not want to see that endangered. We've spent a lot of time today going back over 2022. But what I'd like to do for my final question is drill down on cybersecurity, looking into the trends that our guests today think are likely to dominate in 2023, which will give our listeners some key takeaways from the podcast today. Ellie, could you start? Absolutely. In reality, we will continue to see a significant number of ransomware attacks, phishing incidents, business email compromise. I, I do not anticipate that that will change. I think ransomware will continue to dominate what's coming through my door, what I'm seeing impacting businesses the most, and it has such a high cost, both in terms of time and financially for businesses in responding to those incidents. I expect we'll continue to see growth in the level of scrutiny from regulators over the use of children's data, particularly by social media platforms. And this has already built up over 2022. So I think this is only going to get more significant as we move into 2023. It's already garnered significant press interest, perhaps in the UK, bolstered by the decision in the inquest into the very sad death of 14-year-old Molly Russell, where the coroner concluded that social media content contributed more than minimally to her death. More generally, there's an increased drive in the UK and EU in respect of imposing basic cybersecurity standards for connected products. In the UK, the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill imposes obligations around basic standards with potential fines of up to 10 million or 4% of global turnover, whichever is greater. Across the channel in the EU, there is the Cyber Resilience Act, which seeks to harmonise security when bringing connected products to market. With the EU Act, fines can be up to 10 million euros or 2% of global turnover, whichever is the greater. What is key to both pieces of legislation is the notion of security by design. This means baking in security from the outset, which is a GDPR concept. Both bits of legislation also seek to impose obligations on businesses to inform organisations if there is a perceived vulnerability. And really, the UK and EU position is that they want to tighten up security of products which we have in our homes, the connected products that we rely on so much now, because there is a very real perceived vulnerability and exposure to those products and the cybersecurity of them. 
Thanks, Ellie. Bill, I'd love to get your thoughts on this question and also pose a second question to you. Do you think that there is a cybersecurity skill shortage? I think there's, there's some challenges for us ahead, and one of them certainly is around cybersecurity skills. Um, you know, we've mentioned the risk profile, the uh, opportunity for fines and indeed for damages claims. We've talked about the technical challenges of guarding oneself against these kinds of risks. That all needs technical competence, both to advise firms and to deliver some of the uh, defensive and protective packages that one needs to, to, to guard against this. Now, all firms are needing that. The increasing number of firms are intermediating digitally. Uh, and all those firms are crying out for similar kinds of talents. And that is a talent pool that is not getting any deeper uh, quickly. Uh, we're fortunate as a global firm that we can tip into that talent pool right across a number of regions. Um, but, you know, you need to have stable teams. You need to have people who understand your business uh, in order to have a, a good team that can defend the firm against these attacks. I think that's a real challenge for firms. And I think in that context, it's really important that, you know, we support our teams with not just uh, understanding their own businesses, but also looking at uh, current trends by liaising with government authorities, law enforcement agencies to what they're seeing, with external uh, firms such as DACB, uh, with the insurance industry, so they can learn from other people's experiences as well. With data breaches taking place so frequently, the key to dealing with them is to assume that the worst will happen and plan for that eventuality. Whilst most businesses report that they have a plan in place for a data breach, many either feel unprepared or uncertain that they could respond effectively. Most commonly, we find that speed of response is a top concern for businesses and our clients. We know that managing a data breach is difficult, so we produced a high-level guide to data breach response, which we hope leads to a smoother process, with uncertainty minimised each step of the way via advanced planning, breach handling and compliance. Naturally, much of the preparation for a data breach is technical, making sure to encrypt data, diversify where sensitive data is located, and avoid allowing access to everything via one central point. But advanced planning incorporates a much wider range of actions. Continually training staff is a key factor in reducing human error, which will account for the vast majority of data breach incidents reported to the Information Commissioner's Office. And on the technological side, keeping software up to date by rolling out new versions can help to combat weaknesses. An incident response plan consists of a set of actions that allows for a quick reaction where every relevant arm of the business knows what they need to do to deal with the data breach and indicates, of course, who is responsible for each task. Businesses should look to run through this incident response plan with legal and IT experts to ensure it covers them on both fronts should a breach occur. Testing your plan to ensure that it works as intended is key, and this is best done in coordination with data breach professionals, though running through processes with internal staff is, of course, important also. Plus, ensure that your incident response plan is not entirely located on your servers in the instance that a cyber attack means that you lose access. Advanced planning means that you will have steps in place ready to follow to protect your customers and your business. 
And usually the first step will be putting into action forensic processes to identify any weakness in your infrastructure, or of course, human error that may have allowed someone to access your data, containing any spread by identifying and isolating those affected servers, and of course, communicating effectively with regulators, such as the Information Commissioner's Office, stakeholders, media, and crucially, those data subjects, perhaps your customers, who have been impacted, which is a major component in handling an incident. A key part of your communication to those data subjects, who may of course be customers, employees or clients, is explaining what measures you have in place to offer redress or reassurance. The data breach support service provided by TransUnion offers peace of mind, notifying potentially impacted consumers via mail or email and providing consumers with information that addresses their queries and concerns. A significant part of protecting yourself and your customers from the fallout due to a data breach is, of course, ensuring legal compliance. And it's necessary immediately after a data breach takes place to guard against any potential escalation, fines or legal liability. Under the GDPR legislation, businesses are obliged to notify the relevant authorities within 72 hours of discovering a breach where personal data has been accessed or shared improperly. That's regardless of how the information leaks. If the data, of course, could pose a high risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals. And in that case, it should be communicated to those individuals concerned without undue delay. A data breach could mean individuals are at an increased risk of financial or emotional distress or issues in day-to-day -day life such as discrimination. If you are unsure as to whether a breach qualifies for notification, the ICO has an online self-assessment, telephone helpline and web chat available to you. If I was to give you one key point to take away from this, it would be focusing on the advanced planning stage. You must prepare for the worst and hold regular tests of your incident response plan involving everyone that you'd need to rely on in the event of a cyber attack. So make sure that you have vendors lined up who can help. And that might include cyber insurers, incident responders, external counsel, crisis communication specialists, and of course, TransUnion's data breach solutions team. The investigations into a cyber attack will take time. So business leaders will need patience which I know is difficult in a time of crisis. But let me assure you that giving everyone that space will help in the overall outcome of the incident. And finally, put the data subjects impacted at the heart of your response. Make sure you communicate effectively, providing only confirmed facts, but keeping people up to date. And of course, consider offering solutions like credit and ID monitoring that will provide further protection to those impacted. The proactive rollout of such solutions has been viewed as a positive mitigating factor across numerous RCO investigations, helping in part to reduce an initial notice of intent to find British Airways over £180 million, down to just £20 million on appeal following their data breach back in 2018, which was widely publicised. Credit and ID monitoring can help reduce reputational damage and restore trust with those impacted, helping further to reduce the financial impact that comes with a data breach incident for your business. I'm sure our listeners will agree that this has been a fantastic episode today with so much excellent insight shared by our guests. But unfortunately, we're now out of time. I'd like to say a massive thank you to both Ellie and Bill for giving me their time today for this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what TransUnion can do to support you in the event of a data breach, you can visit us at transunion.co.uk where you'll find a whole heap of information. You can also visit dacbeachcroft.com or reach out to myself, Ellie, or Bill on LinkedIn if you'd like to chat further. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us today. 
Goodbye for now. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Thank you.